If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I've got Eric Woods with me as we continue our amazing coverage of Star Trek number five, The Final Frontier. We'll delve deep into the cast, the background, the aspects on the film, and discuss the amazing score by Jerry Goldsmith. It's all today, and it starts now. I'm Randy Andrews. I'm your host. Eric, it's fantastic to have you on the show again. It's great to be here. Um, I can't believe that we are, we're still doing Trek. Yeah, we are. And I forgot that we did the other ones. So, um, like, like two, three and four. Yeah. 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 It's... See, you know what? We need to go back and do one. Oh yes. Cause yeah. I recently re- revisited that for another show I was on and, uh, I have so much to say about that. So many, pr- so much praise, just so yeah. much love for that movie. Just like I, I really love this movie too. Yeah, it has some great um, effects. Well, I I mean production effects. Sure. For this movie, um, special effects not so much. Not so much. Um, they had to cut a lot. So, yeah. uh, but let's get into some of the talk on like the cast and things like that. Sure. Um, we can talk about. Oh, uh, okay, I know this is skipping toward the end of the movie, mm-hmm. but George Murdoch, who played the god creature, um, he later played Admiral Hansen in Next Generation on Best of Both Worlds, uh, part one and two. Did I, you know that? I didn't because, no, I didn't um, until I read that, and I really should have gone back and watched Best of Both Worlds again uh, because that's like its own thing mm-hmm. you know that's a for me that's a star trek movie as well oh it is and, and you know you take that out and you play that in the theaters and it's it's just as good as any of the star trek movies such a great great episode two episodes mm-hmm. so um no i and i'm not really familiar with uh the admiral in that yeah, so i don't remember him i can't remember him either but I thought he I played know. a perfect, um, you know, quote unquote, God mm-hmm. in this. The processing of his voice is really, uh, really menacing because I noticed that listening to and watching the movie last night. Um, there's a real presence in the 
in the music and the sound effects, but the way that they processed his voice and the way it just kind of surrounds you, um, mm-hmm. even if it's in the stereo field, because I was watching it in stereo last night instead of in surround sound downstairs, but it's just a, a really, a really cool and, and, and menacing effect when it shouldn't be, but of course it should be. Um, you but you know, think. when you first hear him, right, it's like, it's the voice of God mm-hmm. and you expect it to sound like that, but then you realize just how, you know, menacing this man, uh, is. And I thought mm-hmm. it was just so well done. And I mean, I love sound. I love, I love mixing and, and, and creating sound effects and things of that yeah. sort for, for, you know, my own stuff. So I was uh, really paying particular attention to that. And I've always, always enjoyed that part and just the, the, the sound that they produced, uh, for God in this movie. Yeah. One of the things I was noticing was that it, when I first saw this, I thought the character Cybok was actually the same person that mm. was playing the God figure. Sure. I mean, when I first saw it and then I realized, oh, this was a, it's a different guy. Right. That they picked. Yes. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> but that would make, almost make sense. I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, would you want to see your own image on I don't know. It would kind of unnerve you. Yeah, right. Like what? I'm God. (laughs) (laughs) So, but uh, then you know, you you think about the reactions of our three main Star Trek people: Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in this film, and they're they they join together throughout the whole movie, and. We're going to go back to the beginning of the movie because one of the things that I really appreciate is even though it's mainly a stuntman going up uh, El Capitan. Yes. But you see William Shatner on like it's like a set that he's on like uh, part of it. But you see the face of El Capitan in the background. Right. Of what he's supposed to be climbing. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of that throws too. you off. Yeah. But it's like I saw a documentary called Free Solo. I don't know if you saw it. You know what? I have it and I really okay. have to, like we got so many movies we need to watch and that's one I have <laughs> to get to and I heard it's amazing. Oh, it is. I saw it at the Alamo Draft House. Oh, wow. And um, it was, oh, it was fantastic. There was hardly anyone in the theater <sighs> and yeah. I just watched it and I was like, this is amazing. This is so good. And seeing it in the theater, you know, made that impact so much stronger of the journey that he took mm-hmm. to actually climb it. It took him like three and a half hours to climb it. Yeah. But, I mean, at one point he even left the project and came back to it. Yeah. But that's another tale, sure. you know. But yeah. But for having Kirk climb El Capitan was kind of cool to see. It was. Um, even though it wasn't actually him. Right. But... But it was still a neat kind of a it w- and then another aspect of the film that kind of threw you out of the movie was the very, very beginning where it's like on a desert area and there's a planet and there's horses and mm-hmm. you th- you think, what am I watching? Right. Exactly. Yeah, I felt that last night because I totally forgot that it has this prologue uh, to the film. Which mm-hmm. then makes it seem like, like an episode of Star Trek, right? You know, yeah. You have the prologue, and then boom, main credits, and then you get into the story. And I totally forgot because I expected when I saw the Paramount logo to come in, I was expecting the Courage fanfare to, to blast out the way Goldsmith would do, 
in subsequent pictures. And I was like, what's happening? Am I watching a director's cut? <laughs> and, uh, but I think it's, I think it sets up the mystery, uh-huh. sets up the perfect, uh, the uh, cyborg perfectly, I think. And like, you know, what does he do? What's his power? You know, who are these people and, and where is he? And you think that he's the bad guy of the film. Mm-hmm. And then you just learn to realize that he's just totally out of his element, that he's, mm-hmm. he's, he doesn't want to hurt anybody. He just wants to, you know, fulfill his goal because he feels like he's finally going to be able to to speak to God, and then it, you know, just backfires on him, and he's not a bad person. Like you, you know, when during the battle of um, Nimbus three, mm-hmm. when they're trying to save the quote unquote hostages, right? He's yeah. like, "Stop, stop! I didn't want any of this to happen, right?" So you know, you got the Federation people coming in, and they're just you know, guns a blazing, and he didn't want anything negative. To happen. Mm-hmm. He didn't want anybody to die. He wanted everybody to to experience this. You know, mm-hmm. he was like a televangelist. You yeah. know, that's yeah. The, and I watched it tonight uh, last and night. And I, I was think like, that's, that's exactly yeah, that's what he was he supposed is. to be. Like this religious yeah. fanatic. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, if you feel this, you will get that. And even you know his his um his healing process, right? Yeah. Even though he has some sort of give me your pain, right? You know what I mean. Yeah. Give me your it pain. It was almost just, a brainwashing. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you know that that you know you are not healed, right? And you know somebody touches yeah. touches the guy's head and they fall over and everybody goes crazy. That's it's yeah. exactly what I felt like he was like, but he was way more innocent than what those people are like. Um, mm-hmm. He actually f- truly felt that he was going to be doing something special, not only for him but for the entire universe and the galaxy mm-hmm. and so yeah so i thought it was just a great way to set him up as as a potential bad guy mm-hmm. um when event when really he he wasn't yeah and thinking about the events that were on nimbus 3 and how there were those three people that were meeting um oh, what's the one guy's name he was in Star Trek Six, correct as the Klingon. That's right. And it's like, yes. why did they cast him twice? Once as a human, once well, as a Klingon. You know, he's in, he's in makeup, right? <laughs> Didn't they? Do, I mean, there's a bunch, there's a bunch of like um, you know Trek character actors that have played three or four yeah, different roles throughout. Yeah. And I would even forget that these people have played multiple roles throughout. And that just you know just credits great makeup artists to to hide that sort of thing, unless you're really paying attention and looking for it mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's true yeah. and i mean i only noticed it because i really like star trek six. Oh yeah indeed and i can't wait to talk about that when we get a chance oh and that'll be that'll be in the future yes don't worry we'll we'll get there <laughs> um but the thing that i really appreciate is how there are certain things that i found with star trek five that would be like a a Star Trek thing. Like they talked about the yeoman. Um, One of the jokes about Star Trek is the captain's yeoman. They rarely get to do anything important. Well, Shatner had said that his real life daughter, which was Melanie Shatner, she was able to be his yeoman on the bridge when he handed her his jacket for getting away from Earth and being able to, you know, take it away. And there's that joke, well, there's nowhere to hang your jacket. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, uh, oh, and talking about the the 
Al Capitan again. The stuntman was Kenny Bates, and he's he's credited with the highest descender fall in the U.S. So that was interesting that that was actually... I mean, I'm sure that he was on wires or something, but, mm-hmm. you know, it looked very real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been so. watch, re-watching um, my cliffhanger as mm-hmm. well. So it's just interesting that we got into this movie and I've been watching, I rewatched cliffhanger as well, and you're, you're seeing all these. There's an incredible shot of, uh, I think, Stallone, you know, just hanging from the cliff. It's him, mm-hmm. and he's really there. This isn't a special effects shot. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're they're having to get rid of wires or, or whatnot. And um, it's just, it's fascinating to see how they do that sort of, that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, you could, I mean, it's not Shatner hanging from, you know, one arm underneath a, a giant rock hundreds yeah. of feet in the air. But it's still, I mean, my, my favorite part, my good. Fa- yeah, my favorite part is watching <laughs> Bones, you know, freaking out. He's supposed to be on vacation, right? And yeah. he's just having a heart attack watching, uh, it's like watching Shatner. Go and relax. Yeah, exactly. It'll be good for you. Yeah, indeed. And then he's like, nervous wreck. Yeah, and I thought that was great. <laughs> it was so good. Because it's so bones. Um, I thought it was interesting that through these three characters, that it's the most action that they've done physically for acting out of the different Star Trek movies. Um, Because they were running, they were jumping, Mm. you know, they were doing all these things, including uh, McCoy, uh, Shatner, and uh, Nimoy. And uh, I thought that was just interesting because it's like, they've done physical things on a Star Trek movie, but maybe they had, you know, some people doing some Mm. of those actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... I mean, I'm not sure if you're you're planning on getting into this now, but I mean, just those three together in this movie. I'm trying to think of of another one of the films where the three of them being together is so so important to the plot, and them working off each other and feeding off each other, and and we're learning more about the characters. I think more than any other Star Trek film. It like could we, have been. I I don't know, but you know, it could have been just two deep, or just deep. Well, I mean, you 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 saw the, you know, in number one when when Spock shows up for the first time and everybody's super happy to see them. Um, but I and in number two, then you know when when Spock dies and you just know that they, Kirk and and Spock had this very close relationship, and of course you you knew that McCoy was annoyed by Spock. And, and and that sort of thing. But just the three of them together in this movie, because we didn't really get a chance to do that in number four because, again, Spock was coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, especially number three. But number four, he was just coming back, and, and, and he was you know kind of reestablishing things and, and figuring it all out again. Um, but now that they're back together and sort of somewhat normal, mm-hmm. um, it's so important, especially to this film when the special effects failed, um, that their characters and the script and the dialogue work. And and I'm not really sure why so many people uh, hate this movie because, again, I really think that that the three of them and the exploration of their characters, and especially once we get into the middle of the film where you know, we see McCoy's decision to to let his dad go and, you know, Spock witnessing his birth and what his father had to say. And then, you know, of course... But see, that's that's the whole point, 
when we talk about those three together, yes. um, I think one of the key moments was that Gene Roddenberry agreed with Shatner about these three characters should not be split up. Right. Like, originally, they had that uh, Spock was going to go with Cybok. Mm. And Spock, or Nimoy, was like, no, these three, they stick together. They're, you know, they're such, they're so bonded together that they will never betray one another. Right. And right. so I think that was... That was in my notes, too, that, you know, these three together, they were going to experience this whole thing. If they were going to go to the planet, they were going to go together. Correct. And they were not going to side with Cybok, but they were going to, well, in a sense, go on an away mission, discover some new alien culture, you right. know, and it's but, it's just like a great Star Trek episode. Well, it's the it's the camaraderie. Mm-hmm. It's it, and and the key to this movie is that middle portion, right, where Cybok is finally showing what his powers are and and how he's going to free them from, from pain. And you can see McCoy easily, like, yep, uh, I understand what you're doing now. And then even Spock, now Spock doesn't say anything, right? He mm-hmm. sees he sees the memory, walks away, and you could just feel that it's just toying with him, yeah. you know, as to what to do. And 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 Cybok thinks that Spock is now on his side, and asks him to come, and he doesn't, and and that's where it's like these are three best friends, and they and even McCoy's like, well, I guess I'm sticking around, and he probably would be the one to kind of go off on his own, yeah, uh, but but he just under but then he understands, yeah, you know what, the, these these this the three of them together make them the strongest and without them all being together they really aren't nothing the ship can't function and they need each other and exactly. it's and it and it, it, it just all comes out in that scene and 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 for those that have dismissed this movie blindly need to go back and really examine just the characters the script and the dialogue again get away from the action sequences and the special effects, um, the poor special are, effects. You know, I it's mean, like they real. The thing it was that you know they had the writer strike. That's why they had yeah. to cut that movie. And, and he cut got it and, and, cut it. and Shatner got screwed. And and yeah. and I just wish he could go back and fix the special effects. So then the people can just pay attention to this movie without going, oh that 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 shot sucks and and whatever. There's just so much more to this film, mm-hmm. and it's really crazy that people just dismiss it uh, because. Again, I'm trying to think of of any other movie where this is where the characters themselves it, it's the most important aspect and it's the most exploration done and, and and the fact is that there's even things that have happened in the past that then come back into like Shatner knew you know the you know the introduction of the Klingons was such a mm-hmm. brilliant device because of his hatred towards them. And and we see that resolve in Star Trek Six, but we sort of see him kind of like flipping a bit at the end of this movie because again he thought he was going to die, which mm-hmm. I think again is just a magnificent sequence when he sees that bird of prey, right? And the guns yeah. pointed at him, and it's like he's done, he's yeah. done. 
And and then all of a sudden he gets that apology, and I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> What's happening here? Yeah, you know, yeah. he thought he was captured. He thought he was gonna die, and all of a sudden it's like, boom, he's he's getting. Let me uh, present our gunner, right? Yeah, and that, and then now it's all of a sudden. Wait, Klingons Federation working together, and that you know, then comes to fruition in in, in Star Trek Six. Yeah, and and of course his, you know, his hatred of the Klingons due to them, you know, killing his son in Star Trek Three. And I just like that how that that continuity stays, and that's part of his character. Mm-hmm. And then again, going back to that part where he doesn't want to erase his pain, because that's what makes it's him like I him. need my pain. He needs his pain. Yeah. And so, and then, you know, going back, you know, there's so many great jokes about immortality, and the fact you know, like you know, you know Spock. <laughs> yeah, Spock is you know essentially <laughs> immortal as a yeah. joke. Um, it's like, well, I've died before, and that was in Star Trek Six, you know. Right. You know, it's like, and and it's just even the humor's. I think the humor's great. The yeah. writing is great. I think Shatner just got so screwed. Um, you know, the, 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 even the, the cinematography is magnificent. I think we'll talk about mm-hmm. that later when we talk about um, one of the cues here. There's so many great shots in this movie. It really yeah. looks good. Um, but yeah, except I just, for the effects. Except I mean, for the effects, it's like, yeah. man, poor Shatner. Yeah. Really got messed up in this one. Um Yeah. But I love this oh, movie. Yeah, it's it's really good. Um one thing that I noticed and when I had looked at my notes before watching the movie and I noticed certain aspects of like the backgrounds, the sets, um they used uh the corridors from the Enterprise D as the Enterprise A corridors in this film. And that yeah. was for Next Generation. Right. Because it was already going on. And it's like, well, why not? Yes. You well, might as well use it. He's got to save some money, right? You know, yeah. budgets are slashed and he doesn't have much to do. So it's like they were, what, were they filming season two of Next Generation at yeah, the same yeah. time as filming, you know, Star Trek V. And sure, the corridors are there. Why build them? Yeah. Just They're use already them. there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that an, an, unless you are told that, you don't really notice it. Um, mm-hmm. Although I was paying attention this time, so um, it was interesting to see, you know, the yeah, <laughs> the corridors of uh, yeah, of uh, it's like hey, I've seen that. Yeah, before. yeah, for sure. But it's um, it it it's not distracting. At least for me, yeah. it isn't. Yeah, I, I, and I don't think so either because like there's there's even some actual good practical effects mm-hmm. that actually occur in this movie, like when they land the shuttlecraft oh, yes. onto the Enterprise. Because yes. to do that, they uh, used a scale model and they placed it on a launching pad connected to garage door springs. And a crane was used to move the catapult into place. And it's like, look at the work that that totally. had to take just to do that yep. scene. That's crazy. I, I thought the exact same thing watching it last night. I'm like, they built a full-scale shuttlecraft. Yeah. You know, functioning doors, and they pile out, and yeah, that's so appreciative. Mm-hmm. Totally is. And it, uh, yeah, that's it's a It's like a point. sentiment sentiment to good, actual, practical effects. Well, yeah, and, and, and what could have been done mm-hmm. if... Uh, you know, certain things didn't happen. And if they, you know, made the movie as if, you know, it was like a regular film and, and nobody was interfering. And 
there wasn't a writer strike and you know it's yeah it's it's really it's sad to to hear you know everything that happened with this movie cuz yeah. it really could have been a I lot think, better held as one of the best mhm yeah because it 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 felt more like an actual star trek True. episode yes it did yeah and i appreciate that absolutely yeah um okay so this is interesting you know how they they've created so many books and they have the movies they have the tv show well according to one of the books that is called the q continuum which i guess it was a trilogy of some kind um they actually brought out that the the creature that was god quote unquote god on the planet um was actually an energy based being known as the one that traveled through the guardian of forever into the milky way galaxy by another omnipotent being known as zero and after being defeated by the q the one was locked away in a prison and it was only his head that actually like survived <laughs> That's so weird. out of out of the whole situation and it's like oh so this movie is actually real canon according to star trek lore strange. <laughs> i strange. agree very strange yeah but there were so many fun things like even the uh you know we uh, we were talking about nimbus 3 and one of the moments that i found so fun and kind of hilarious but yet also awesome was spock nerve pinching a horse oh yeah Yes. <laughs> he did the Vulcan nerve pinch on a horse. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, he just took down a horse. <laughs> it was quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, with the different sets, we were talking about, you know, the uh, Next Generation, and they mm-hmm. used several things from Next Gen for, like, the Enterprise A, but the bridge was actually a new set mm-hmm. and um, the helm, the handrails, the platforms, um, according to the DVD commentary, there was a new bridge set that was necessary because the old movie bridge was mostly damaged from a windstorm uh, in a parking lot. And so it had to be modified using TNG. So that was interesting. And then you get the classic line from Shatner saying, I miss my old chair. Right. So. Well, here's, I can't remember. Did we see the bridge of of this new Enterprise in Star Trek Four? No, because they were on the, uh, well, at the very, that... very end. The very, very end, okay. I, I think we did. So I wonder how similar it is. Unless not. No. Um, did they even Maybe go? Not. Did they even go on it? Like that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, is this the first time? No, they've already been on it, but it's in a in a state of disarray. So have but they see, already? You know, they like, had the th- a brand new ship because it's, the other one got blown up in three. Right. So this brand new one. I mean, again, we see the uh, the reveal at the end of Star Trek Four, and I can't remember where they actually got on it or not. And I think they did. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember what the bridge looks like. I think they said, like. let's see what she's got. Or I guess, something. yeah. So I'm wondering yeah. whether that 
I wish I had seen four um, again, whether that bridge is similar to the Star Trek five bridge. And, you know, what's the timeline here? Like, did they just take it for a quick spin and they come back, then they went on shore leave because of all the <laughs> crap that happened to them in the, in, in, in Star Trek two, three and four. And then like, you know, the ship is like, it doesn't seem like it's ready to go. Yeah. Um, or something had happened. This could have happened like right after. That's what Maybe I'm thinking. They had to recover. They had to recover sure. from the time travel and yeah. <laughs> dealing with water and the damage to the earth. And, right. you know. Yeah. So, so I mean, with the timeline, how long between, you know, how I much didn't time? look that up. Yeah. I did not look that up. I should have, but I didn't. I'm just wondering I why is really the ship, about that. why is the ship like in. Like that's what he, I was. I'm just wondering. It's a brand new. I mean, I guess these problems are. Well, whatever. <laughs> I, I just think it's a great plot device. Yeah. Because it, it is. takes. It adds more. It's it's more threatening. There's more danger when you can't, you know, simply beam out of somewhere, mm-hmm. and you can't like. Well, I guess they could jump into warp, but. You know, it's it's still broken. Things have mm-hmm. to be done and. And things aren't and working so, correctly, and I just love that little added twist to the to the plot of the film. Adds a sense of humor as well. Yeah, gives Scotty and, something to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it was interesting that you know even with the Enterprise not working, they had to use shuttlecrafts. They had mm-hmm. to use other means instead right. of the transporter. Yes. Well, for instance, because of the writer strike, because they had to cut cost. Maybe they didn't have the budget for this transporter effect <laughs> who knows so i mean that but could I just, very I, I, well but be I, you know what it, what i do like about that is that it becomes um a sense of urgency for scotty to get the transporter ready because if he didn't they don't survive mm-hmm. on the god planet yeah and, and i think that's again a scotty saves the day you know he does something <laughs> to, to help yeah his his, his buddies yeah, so. exactly. And I I found Although, wait, it interesting. Hold on a minute. Oh, go ahead. Yes, it was. No, yeah, right. He he transported Spock and McCoy back to the Enterprise. Yeah, but he and, wasn't able to do Kirk. Right. Because Kirk was transported by the Klingons. That's right. Exactly. So. But yeah, uh and I found it interesting that they were able to use some ILM things mm. from uh Star Wars. Because they used the uh, TIE Fighter cannon noise sure. for when they shot on the God Being. Which is really strange. Yeah, it was kind of, it took you out of the movie for a moment. <laughs> it's like, but... could you not come up with something else? <laughs> yeah, it's like, like um, oh, hey, let's, so let's use this. I can't remember, like when they shot the, um, the probe um, at the beginning, like when they were doing the target practice. You know, mm-hmm. What sounds were being used at that point? Was it still Star Wars canon yeah. sounds? Oh, was yep. it? Okay. I can't, yeah. I can't recall. I do remember. It, it felt that way. I remember it at the but... end, for sure. What a weird. <laughs> so strange. <laughs> so strange. That's all right. Those. Yeah. That's all right. But, you know, the thing about this movie is that there's so many things about it that actually make it feel like Star Trek. Because mm-hmm. they do go to a planet. They do investigate they are actually exploring the galaxy yes and i mean that's star trek that is essentially what this tv show is all about was discovering new planets Mm -hmm. new races Mm -hmm. new you know 
to boldly go where no man has gone before. Correct. And and I that's again why I really appreciate this movie. That's why I appreciate number one. Look, I love number two. I mean, Wrath of mm-hmm. Khan is is my favorite, hands down. The thing about Wrath of Khan, it's just spurred on so many action treks. Everybody's trying mm-hmm. to you know outdo Wrath of Khan with their action trek, where they do forget about the characters. Um, you know, you know, good writing, good mm-hmm. dialogue, and and exploring. I mean, I, I, I don't. I mean, I know you wanna, I know you wanna make as much money as possible as a producer, studio, but I don't think they give the audience enough credit that they will actually, you know, sit through, um, you know, a character study. I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can add some action here and there, but if it's just constant action all the time, it does get boring. That gets boring, at it least does, to me. Because I, it's too much. It like, does be, yeah, like you the need a break not from there, it. Right? The yeah. dan- because here we have the unknown. And then again, that's mm-hmm. what I liked about Star Trek 1. We did not know what V'ger was. It was a great mystery. Mm-hmm. And and this one, it's like, wow, it's a quest for God. And right up to the end of this movie... You almost think that maybe they did find him. And it's like, well, now what's going to happen? And, of course, there's the great twist with the great line of what does God need with a starship? And starship, it's like, yeah. I mean, what a line that is. And yeah. it's delivered brilliantly twice. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right? <laughs> excuse me. It's like, excuse me, <laughs> yes. what does God need with a starship? I, I, and, I, and I love that line. Yeah. And, and I just... Yeah, I would love it if, and I think the, you know, the going into the new track, the Kelvin timeline, I think those actors playing those characters were, were just as strong as the original cast members that they could have gotten away with mm-hmm. something like a Star Trek V or a, you know, just a, or, or just a traditional. Good st- Star Trek. Star Trek, yeah, episode with a big yeah. budget. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with action. There is nothing no. wrong with it. I mean, you are going to need it, but I mean, there wasn't any in, in Star Trek the motion picture. Most people mm. say that it failed, it was too slow, but man, you watch that movie, it's beautiful. And I think that it's um it's a great mystery. And yeah. and it just uh, it keeps kept me on the edge of my seat and and even just just the the sheer spectacle of it. Just mm-hmm. watching the the art on screen. And that's what was missing in five. Um, and I think that if you had those special effects that were working, you had Shatner able to make the movie that he wanted to make, um, along with this traditional Trek-styled story, mm-hmm. I think more people would like it. I, I mean, honestly, I would love to hear like from anybody that's listening to this, mm-hmm. you know, why do you hate it so much? What What is it? What is it about this movie that just turns you off and eliminates special effects? I get it. Mm-hmm. I don't like them either. What is it? Yeah. And so that's that's where I'm I'm curious. Um Yeah, and okay, so we've we've really delved deep into like why this movie is so good. Yeah. And it's like it's it, it ha- also has that testament of good music scoring totally which is jerry goldsmith and i mean jerry goldsmith was already a veteran of 
Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Like he he did he did Star Trek the motion picture. He was already established as a good Trek composer and I think this was perfect for him too because he didn't want to extenuate the film's comedy with music. Mm-hmm. He he felt that it would take it to a point of silliness and so he focused on the Shakari planet as his most difficult task in scoring the film, which made total sense. I agree. And I and I love that comment about the comedy. He does play it twice, mm-hmm. I think. But they're just so dead on. And and I can see why he didn't want to... I mean, that was, I think, the big problem with Star Trek Four and uh, Rosamund's score especially during the action sequences in that movie. You know, the hospital chase, it's very silly. It accentuates how silly it is, and it shouldn't have been that. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're, you know, a lot of these, I mean, you look at some comedies where where if the music's playing it straight, um, that adds much more to the film, I think, than just playing to the comedy. I mean, you don't want to have a Carl Starling type of uh, score. Although I think that one of Goldsmith's comments was that and I think it was during the, uh, which was it? The, 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 oh, what sequence was it? Um, the shuttlecraft returning to the, the Enterprise, Enterprise with the Klingons kind of hot on their tail. Yeah. There was a Carl, um, Starling type of, uh, sequence, sequence, more moment. And I think mm. he even mentioned that on the, on the scoring stage. Okay. Um, but there was a brilliant piece of, of just comedy to just break up the action a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't play it too silly. It was just perfect. No. It was really perfect. And it, and it just matched the, the way I think Kirk delivered the line. I think it was, was it, was it plan? Was it, we're talking about plan B Plan B or something yeah. like that. Yep. And Goldsmith played that bit of comedy just perfectly. Um, yeah. But then just ramped it up and got back into the action. So I do, asked, I do like that. Plan B? Yeah. I like that. He played it straight. <laughs> And and, yeah. and again, I love the comedy in this. I don't I don't know if any of the jokes felt or or fell dead. I don't I don't think they were forced. I think it was genuine yeah. good comedy, with the exception of maybe Scotty hitting his head on the. But mm-hmm. I think that was funny too. Yeah, you know it's, <laughs> and I remember seeing that in the trailer. And I don't know what movie I was watching it, but we were with you know we were at the theater, and that then that portion happened. And, people erupted they thought that was hilarious mm-hmm. and i thought it was just um <laughs> it's very it's a very funny uh joke and yeah. uh but and the thing about it though is that goldsmith didn't play to that comedy mm-hmm. he kept the score like you said straight yes he played it straight which was good and like when i was listening to the score uh I like in the notes it it brings out about his bold action style with percussion rhythms, frenetic string lines, and forceful brass and snare injected into the score um, to really bring out the composer's best mannerisms of what he's capable of doing. Mm. Yeah, he definitely, he pushes scenes forward. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there was a ton of dialogue in this movie as well, and we've gone over that here. It's just so important. 
and and I was really paying attention to some of the the dialogue writing. It's tough to do um, mm-hmm. to underscore maybe certain things that aren't said in the dialogue or things that are implied, and to make that come across in the music. Mm-hmm. And uh, Goldsmith did it masterfully, uh, and 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 that's where. It, you don't want wall-to-wall music, and especially music under dialogue. You really want to have a reason for scoring dialogue. Yeah. And and when Goldsmith came in to this film, and when you hear him scoring dialogue, that's when your ears perk up, and mm-hmm. you're like, "Oh, this is important. It's not just fluff. There's no. a reason behind it." And I find that, you know, some scores are again just wallpaper. And and there's there's no reason behind the music other than to just kind of fill space. It's background. It is total background. It's just wallpaper for yep. for some unknown reason. And all composers um, have done that. And some and, of it's noise. Oh, it's just and some of well, you know what I can even say it's like the, the, one of the greatest composers ever. You know, John Williams. I mean, you listen to some of the the dialogue stuff that he wrote in, in the Phantom Menace. That score is fantastic, but mm-hmm. holy smoke, some of the, the Coruscant stuff that he wrote, it's like, why? It's meandering. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really no point to it. And so, however, with this score, especially, and listening to it back on album as well, man, there's not a wasted note Mm-mm. at all. Even the stuff that got cut out, Um Goldsmith yeah, had uh, a purpose. He had a purpose on this one, and like you said, he he paid so much attention to 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 the story and to the characters, and and, and creating the perfect Shakari theme. You know, it's mm-hmm. you can tell that this one was just not a. He cared about it. He definitely cared about it. Yeah, and one thing I was thinking about with the way he brings out music, his his like in my notes, I I, I pointed out. To me, muscular energy of several scenes. Totally. And there was a touch of swashbuckling atmosphere for a spirit of exploration. Um, It returned to an earnest uh, score. And two of the the cues that really are interesting is a tall ship and then plot course. And it's like an optimistic reintroduction of the starship you know of the enterprise and it's so memorable because you really get the feeling yes we're back at the helm we're on the enterprise yeah i think what just to add to that i agree completely 100 percent what you had to say the tall ship getting that on the expanded album mm-hmm. was just the greatest gift to I think any fan of Goldsmith or, or, or Star Trek because it's it, it's just phenomenal and what I think is so great about that cue and so much of the playing of the Star Trek theme of Goldsmith Star Trek theme um, he could have easily just gone note for note for some of the cues that he had written for Star Trek the motion picture especially for the reveal of the Enterprise in this in this film he could easily just you know, hey, this is again another reveal, and we're going to play it the way we did in Star Trek One. But he um, he took this opportunity, and he does this with the whole score to really play with it, play with that theme. Mm-hmm. He loved that theme, 
and and not only play with it in orchestration and in color, but he changed a few notes here and there of the theme. It's still very familiar, but then he takes it to somewhere unexpected. And and I and I that's what I appreciate with any composer, especially returning to their previous themes or previous scores, is whether they are going to take a specific theme and really play with it. And I hate to bring up Star Wars in a Star Trek show. But I mean that's, <laughs> that's what John right. Williams did brilliantly with the Imperial March in The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Rarely is it played the same way twice. And even then yeah. when he returns to it in Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. he, he, there's just always a a, a variation. And so I variations. So yep. this this tall ship, this... you know, cue is just a perfect example of theme and variation. Yeah. And and, and he does the same thing in in um a plot, plot course plot because course. Yeah. he's now adding energy to it. It's it's really a dynamic statement of that theme. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I love that. You know, and, and I'm going to stay in, tra- in track. You know, that's what Giacchino did great, or did really well with his score to Star Trek Beyond. Mm-hmm. He really picked apart his own theme and was able to play sections here, play sections there, and really play around with it and have some fun with it and, and really make it different instead of it staying stagnant and and overly familiar as in, hey, I, that's the exact same cue written here. So uh, that's what I love about this score. And even the Klingon music, you know, just goes through. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that yeah. a little bit. So that's, what, know, that's bit, what I really so. love about Goldsmith here. He cared. He really cared. Yeah. And, and I think Shatner really appreciated Goldsmith and that's why he brought him back and and let him do what he does what he does best. Yeah, so now let's play those two cues, a tall ship and plot course.
Eric with Jerry Goldsmith. He wasted no time in resurrecting Alexander Courage's original theme in a high style. Um, now, you, we don't get it right at the beginning of the film. Right. But it's it's later. And how do you feel really about how that theme was brought back? How it's, you know, Alexander Courage's original theme, but it's been like reintroduced in a way. Um, it, you know, it's it was always there. Um, it played mm-hmm. throughout the other four movies. Um, I, again, I think we talked about this earlier where the film opens up with the Paramount uh, logo. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 nothing it's just you know this ominous sound and but then to hear it come back i mean it w- it's just a f- wonderful forceful rendition of that cue you know the, the french horns are just blasting away mm-hmm. um i love that it came back i wish composers would use it more um, instead of just yeah. that, you know, that one statement at the at the beginning of the movie, maybe at the end, but I, just, I wish they'd play with it some more the way that Goldsmith did in Star Trek One. But it was great to have that back, as yeah, was and, you know bringing Goldsmith's theme from One back as well. Exactly, and one thing that I really noted was how oh, the cue it's called um, "Without Help," um, and it's so memorable because. Goldsmith reinserts that Klingon theme like we were talking about that, you know, it's that subsequent music that really shines. That's it almost seems like it was directly inserted from uh, the motion picture in a way. But, you know, he used it differently. He for sure. He like wove it. (laughs) No, no. And I and I and I think that. Well, out of all the camp, well, not out of all the new themes, I think it it's great to hear him play around with the Klingon theme because he didn't get to do that at all in Star Trek mm-hmm. One. He probably would have been able to do that in Star Trek Three if he had got an opportunity. But you know, the Klingons were in the first five minutes of of the motion picture, and I mean, what a cue that is. Anyway, it's just mm-hmm. one of the best bad guy motifs ever. <laughs> but I think again. Um, having the Klingons in this movie, I'm sure Goldsmith's eyes just opened up and said, yep, I get to finally play with this theme 10 years later. Yeah. And and with this particular cue, without help, uh, for me, it's one of Goldsmith's uh, greatest action cues. It's, it's one of my favorites. And rarely do we get to hear Jerry Goldsmith play around with so many leitmotifs in mm-hmm. one cue. Um and because usually, you know, Goldsmith will write a theme, might write a sub theme, and that's all you get for for a film. But you know, you got Cybok's theme in this, you got the Star Trek theme in this, you got the Klingons theme in this. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's so cool. And then my favorite part, I mean, I, just, I look, it's a toe tapping piece for me. Just every time the Klingon theme pops up, I'm I'm just tapping my toes. But yeah, because it's the like Rams you know, horn, you get those. Yeah, it's it's like oh man, it's really amazing. I yeah. love the ram's horn, though. I think the ram's horn is so <laughs> awesome. And and just the way within this, I think it's like a five-minute cue, there's mm-hmm. just so yeah. much happening. And rarely do you do, do you hear Goldsmith just kind of turn on a dime and in, introduce a theme, and now the no, no, next theme, and now this theme. And it, 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 it 
rarely happens. And he was mm-hmm. so very skillful at it that I kind of wish he did more of it. Um, and, uh, you know, and he, he probably did, and I can't think of any examples right now, and, 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 <laughs> and, and no doubt he did. But, I mean, just this this part, it's uh, it was one of my favorite cues when I finally got the album, uh, the original album. I played it to death. Um, just because it sounds so good, too. Bruce Botnick's recording is excellent. And it's got a great mix in the movie, too. You know, yeah. Shatner loved the mu- the music, so you can just tell this score is front and center. And it's mm-hmm. just great that it gets this it, the exposure that uh, this score gets. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I really noted was that you know it's just it's there's like these bits of brass and uh, what was I looking for? There was. There was something in it, wood blocks, like wood blocks totally. and plunked strings that mm-hmm. were used for this very cue. Yes. And that's what really was kind of cool. Oh, it, um, yeah, and it takes yeah. you back to, um, you know, Planet of the Apes or, mm-hmm. oh, God, there's another one where you use mixing bowls and things of that sort. And I, the name of the film is slipping my mind. Goldsmith was always experimenting. It could have been um, Explorers because he did Explorers. Yeah, no, there was, there was this other film, I think, in the 1970s. I can't remember the name, and I'm sure someone's going to let me know. Um, <laughs> I love Goldsmith's experimentation. It okay. didn't take away from his strengths, but it always added an extra color without mm. just being experimental for the sake of being experimental. He really, his his experiments always fit the story, and never took away from it, um, whether it's electronic or percussion or or whatever. But he always had that symphonic backing as well, um, which I really appreciated. So it was always fascinating to to hear a new Goldsmith score and and, and what that new thing he was going to mm-hmm. to inject into his scores um, that always kept his music interesting. Yeah, so let's uh, go ahead and play that cue of uh, Without Help because it really highlights that uh, Klingon theme. Yeah, indeed.
The next thing I'd like to talk about just briefly, and I mean, this could be brief, this could be very long. <laughs> uh, a less heralded returning theme is the optimism of the later half of Raid on Paradise. And this minute of material incorporates the title theme, but it accompanies it with the motif that Goldsmith wrote for Spock's arrival in the motion picture, giving second life to one of the several cues that the composer wrote for the earlier film, but then it had been rejected. Hmm. What do you think? I didn't know that. I should probably read the liner notes a little bit more uh, closely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I really, I love this theme as well. I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, Mm -hmm. his use of, of, of percussion and, and, you know, I don't think we ever got into the way Goldsmith scores action. And he always uses, you know, odd meters and, and strange rhythms. And it just really pushes, I think we talked about, you know, pushing a scene forward. Mm-hmm. There's always yeah. constant momentum. You know, we we're talking about Klingon theme. It's just, you know, toe tapping and just keeps on going. There's, 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 there's reason behind it. There's momentum. There's his snappiness to his, to his action. And it, and then the first part of this cue is, is action. And, but again, it introduces the, the, this interesting percussive sounds, these otherworldly percussive sounds um, and synthesizers and things of that sort. So um, very, very colorful uh, writing. Well, and Goldsmith is so well known to do these unique types of scores like sure. a Total Recall yes. or, oh, you yes. know, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. things like that. You yeah. know, it's like... You you get like some metal sounds, you know, with that score. Sure. And, well, uh, and with this one, even you do. Well, and and that's what again he's he's complimenting. He he's saying something about the music. Uh, sorry about the film or or about the specific scene, and you know the the wildness of these characters as they invade Nimbus Three. You know mm-hmm. they're. They're they're not sophisticated, right? His followers, they're on mm-hmm. horseback. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not sci-fi, right? Mm-hmm. So it's more like a western. Yeah, indeed. And so that's what he's injecting into this cue. And like I said, just an amazing sense of of rhythm and motion. And uh, you know, when that cue just pops up, I mean, you can almost take a scene of someone walking and make it seem like it's exciting. When you mm-hmm. you know inject Goldsmith's uh, action music, and yeah. so yeah, really an amazing, another amazing example of Goldsmith's uh, genius action writing. But even you know, there's even another great example of him just again flipping tone on a dime because mm-hmm. it the action doesn't last long, and and then it just kind of all of a sudden turns into um, you know a shot of and I think this goes on to the, the repurposed shot from Star Trek Four, right? You get this. In, you oh, know, yes. Right? Yep. So now because we have this intercutting. Because they had to repurpose some of these things. Yeah. So we've gone from for, this yep. attack on Nimbus Three to this repurposed shot from, from Star Trek Four of the reveal of the, of the Enterprise. And so you're going from this uh, this this crazy action music to the, the elegance of Goldsmith's Star Trek theme and, you know, adding warmth and uh, 
you know, really, you know, that, that's a good word for this cue, especially for the for the Star Trek theme st- um, portion. Always felt like the return of his theme was like having a warm blanket wrapped around mm-hmm. you, especially in this part. He just, Coltsmith understood that the Enterprise was a character, mm-hmm. is a character on its own. And so when you yeah. see it, it's like seeing the Millennium Falcon in Star Star Wars. You know, it's 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 its own character and and you can get nostalgic and by adding, you know, a specific theme that goes along with that particular vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um it's just it's it's wonderful scoring. I think a good example of that and and here we go again, talking about Star Wars when <laughs> it's a Star Trek film. Blasphemy. But um Solo. Yeah. With the reveal yes. of the Millennium Falcon. Yes. I mean, it was perfect. John Powell did a perfect job. <laughs> totally. With that scene. And I think I think all the composers And Jerry Goldsmith does that. And I think all the composers, if I'm you know, doing these special reveals of the Enterprise within their films, you know, from from Goldsmith to Horner to to even Rosamond to to Giacchino, um, you know, seeing the Enterprise is always something special. And they always do mm-hmm. something special with its first showing in a film. And yeah. and I love that. I love that they understand that this vehicle, this this ship, this starship <laughs> is so important. Yeah. And uh yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, let's play that Q Raid on Paradise. <laughs>
All right, so another one, and this takes us back to the beginning of the movie. Um, this is way, the way my notes are going. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, with uh, the mountain uh, that's at the very beginning of the movie, you know, when they're, they're in the Yosemite National Park. Mm-hmm. And the thing that gets me about it is that we actually hear some of this throughout Star Trek First Contact. Mm-hmm. And that's what impressed me most because he did Star Trek First Contact too. Right. And he had this great reveal for the Enterprise for that. But then with the mountain, he really like reemphasizes the importance of these characters and their friendship. And that's the key. I think the friendship theme is really highlighted in this cue. Yeah. Um, especially when, when things sh- shrink down. And you have the three of the characters together. You know, it goes from this expansive, like, Copeland-esque uh, theme yeah. to just something smaller and more intimate. Um, I think that's great. And you were talking about that that four-note theme, which I always considered, you know, before, again, I was schooled by the liner notes um, <laughs> properly. Like, I always thought it was like a captain theme. I thought it was always something that followed, especially, you know, starting with Star Trek V, that dum 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 theme was something that mm-hmm. followed captains along, and so you hear that in, in 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 first contact. I uh, don't know whether you hear it in all the time, and I think you hear it in 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 Nemesis, maybe. But it's just that it, you know, it, it's it's. It, I thought it was a goldsmith call for for the it captain, was. but it. I think it it did eventually become that, but that I had no idea it was like the the quest theme. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that's what it was meant for. Um, and so I found that really fascinating. And I always enjoyed it. I always loved that um, that aspect of the of the score. And, I mean, yeah, the, the theme that he wrote for the mountain, um, just this singular theme uh, for this one scene. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things Goldsmith has ever written. And, again, it's just a testament to, to his... Uh, strength as a melodic and lyrical writer i mean no uh, mm-hmm. i i know there's other there's certain composers out there it's like hey they have a, a great gift for melody and mm-hmm. you know goldsmith's always known for odd meters and, and and writing music in an odd way but man could he ever churn out a theme yeah and and he really could it's just it's so impressive that if you go through his filmography i mean he's it was always important to him to create a theme just give that film its own identity and 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 he did it time and time again and while you know this mountain cue i don't think it pops up anywhere else it might come up in no. in, in, in maybe a variation somewhere but it's just like it's its own thing mm-hmm. and this is it and i would love to have heard it during the end credits um but and i uh, think Sorry. I mean, we'll get into that just yeah, briefly. Yeah, but in I just a think bit, the mountain but... is like you. You listen, you're like, where did this come from? And and you're right. Uh, it's 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 change, um, to something smaller, um, mm-hmm. as we get to see Spock and, and Bones and and Kirk together. I think again, it's just a a wonderful uh, gift that Goldsmith has of just changing tone on a dime and doing it so well. Without being distracting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll play that cue now. Mm-hmm. 
So the next two cues that I want to talk about are um, a busy man and an angry god. Um, what what do you think of with these two? And we know this is this is where the major part of the actual like exploring and uh, not really action, but more mystery, um, adversity, um, going into something that's unknown, um, a quest for inner demons. Uh, What do you think about that? What I always find fascinating is that in the editing room, you're creating a scene like this without any without any dialogue without any action it's just a lot of you know it's either special effect shots or just people looking at something and reacting but there's nothing being said and mm-hmm. and to craft a, a scene like that and then completely trust your composer to to man bring out the emotion and and really essentially tell the story that's going on musically yeah uh, it's unbelievable i mean i've you know i made a few movies when i was when i was younger and i've done a couple of you know montages and my goodness it is the scariest thing to just have a completely flat scene without anything being said and then just hoping that the musical cue that you're going to put in there is going to be what you hope is in your head and is going to work out and so a busy man uh man uh, for me i i would say it's one of the greatest star trek cues of of all time and uh then i you know i i first heard it away from the film i hadn't seen the film before and i heard it on the an inner console recording i think it was fantastic journey mm-hmm. and i instantly fell in love with it because it wasn't what i expected from star trek i was very young at the time and you know when I saw you know Star Trek Five, I'm like, oh, it must be something action packed because I think Star Trek Two was the only thing that I was really exposed to. And then I heard this piece, and I'm like, what is this? Where's this emotion coming from? Mm-hmm. And and again, you know the that four note quest theme, you know, it, it, that was always something that really stuck with me. And I think that was because of the orchestrations. You know, Goldsmith made this a real meaty piece. Mm-hmm. And with some emphasis, especially in the lower brass. If I'm not mistaken, there's two tubas that are playing in this cue, which is just yeah. incredible. I, I, more people got to use tubas. Tubas and woodwinds, folks. Let's get those <laughs> back into the orchestra. Yep. And just, mm, there's just, it's like, well, oh, there's some feeling there. And and so you got this quest theme playing, and then it turns into the, the uh, that kind of heavenly shakari theme. Yeah. Right. Which is, I think this is the, is this the first time we hear it or first time we hear it in its full complete form? I think so. And it's just like. Because I don't think it comes back until after, uh, well, like, I mean, we get a taste of it probably in the end credits. Right. But we get it. Don't we get it in An Angry God? Yeah, but I'm not sure about it. I I don't think that we are hearing it anywhere else in the film score before that. Right. I don't think there's. No. And I don't. Yeah. Again, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just now you got this synth sound, this airiness, um, very delicate, 
heavenly sound, which then, again, Goldsmith transfers that from synth into these just heartwarming strings. And man, Goldsmith's string writing has just always been brilliant. And so, uh, you know, and the best part about this cue, though, and and you don't really pick it up until in, until you you've seen the movie, and and again we're going back to the cinematography. So this is what I was talking about talking about the cinematography. And then I'm going to talk about this piece of music. There's a shot um, near the end where it's a wide shot of the bridge, and then Shatner mm-hmm. will push the camera in past everybody, and you're like, where is he going? And he's going towards a small monitor, which then shows the display of the Klingon ship. The bird of prey, mm-hmm. like it's it's in the vicinity, yeah. And Goldsmith, amongst all this beauty, interjects this the the Klingon theme in more mm-hmm. of a major mode, but you yeah. still feel the sense of danger. And it's like, oh my god, the counterpoint. Nobody else sees it. No, and nobody and else sees it. And that's important, right? Yeah. Because yep. this is the important aspect of film composing. With your music, you're going to be telling people mm-hmm. the things that they cannot see or feel, <laughs> right? Yep. And yeah, sure, they can see that um, that bird of prey there, right? But it's just adding the the music just makes it a little bit more threatening underneath this this scene of beauty and in mm-hmm. awe and wonder. And that's another thing about this is it's such a um there's so much there's so much that can represent awe right you can bring in mm-hmm. uh, you know your your 100 piece orchestra with with choir and just make it huge but goldsmith pretty much strips it down and with his with his delicate writing and his orchestrations you still get that sense of awe of now you're going to possibly eden and 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 seeing god for the first time right it could have mm-hmm. been something huge like the way he introduced um the second coming in the omen three you know big orchestra big choir but here he just strips it down a bit and there's so much going on there's so much storytelling being done with the music again going back to your initial edit as a director and editor you're like you're hoping that your montage (laughs) is going to work because you're essentially handing that to your composer and hoping that he's good enough to make it all work and my goodness goldsmith made it all work like i said one of the best star trek cues of all time all right so we've talked about a busy man what about an angry god um i just quickly wanted to say something about it it's you know we were talking again about shifts of tone mm-hmm. in this score and and again goldsmith during the angry God sequence is really kind of pulling your tail a bit mm-hmm. because everybody that's there, Spock, McCoy, Kirk, and Cybok think this is God. And of course there's one little thing that, you know, God says, you know, bring the starship <laughs> yeah. closer. And again, great cinematography. I think it goes from Cybok and there's this push in on a dolly to, Kirk and his confused face. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um. Wait a minute. You know what does God need with a starship? And it's at that point that Goldsmith is switching it from being, yeah, this is probably God to, oh, no, it's not. Yeah. And it just goes from 
it goes to this threatening music and it's so it's so amazing it turns into something ominous absolutely and it in in it's the perfect line delivery of what does God need with Starship? And he says it twice. And I and, and, and even McCoy coming in, like, you know, you don't you don't ask that kind of question to to God. And he's like, I just need to ask a question. And yeah. and I just think that the delivery is so it's so it's so Kirk. Mm-hmm. And and that's what's so great about it. But then yeah, the whole tone switches. And I think that again, you've just heard it. It's it's Goldsmith mastery. And he just absolutely knocked it out of the park with this one what a fantastic score yeah um so
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. Um, I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Um, find his work at xanderscores.com. A new theme that's been introduced into the Final Frontier is with the tones that exist with Cybok. And of course, he's the antagonist. He's the one that maybe might be just misguided. But the theme that's used here is like, I don't know, it's otherworldly. It's, oh, I know what it is. It's that synclavier mm-hmm. that has, it's like a synthesizer. And we talked about earlier the four note phrase that dominates the opening, you know, of the, in of that scene with Cybok. Right. But as it progresses, um, it changes like his whole it seems like his perspective changes and goldsmith really highlights that by far because you know we're getting cyborg we're getting a changed man yeah and that that really happens right at the end um because again goldsmith is playing along with cyborg's ideas and his beliefs and really kind of toying with the audience as well as to believe that this is what we are going to discover. And, and I, and I, and I really, um, this is just genius behind Goldsmith. You know, he's really properly telling the story and doing it in a way, again, you know, development, development of themes. So very important and something that a lot of composers nowadays don't do. And and developing the theme musically with the character, mm-hmm. and and even you know as we see you know the cyborg with with our with our three main characters as well who are now confused they don't mm-hmm. know what is happening so Goldsmith's playing towards cyborg and his beliefs rather than mm-hmm. what Kirk and McCoy. And Spock believe, and I really, and I really, really, and I really love that about this about this score. Yeah, and I think that it's important. I mean, I I really can't narrow down a specific point where this theme is really highlighted. Um, well, it's the four note motif, right? So it plays as the as the basic rhythm for. Like it all comes together in a busy man, and that's what's so great mm-hmm. about it. And, and and you know, it's it's the dun 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 dun, right? And it, that continuously, oh, yeah, with like the right, plays underneath. First that. contact is yeah. like yeah, and it's still playing that kind of quest theme mm-hmm. as we. But then once we break, well, we've already broken the barrier. As once we get into the planet, right? Mm-hmm. Then you get the shakari stuff. But that's where it all kind of comes together, mm-hmm. and because it's almost like a like a religious quest. At sure. the heart of the story, you Absolutely. know, it, it is. It's, it's like a affirmed, like harmonic, and uh, has this ensemble feeling hmm. toward that piece. Wouldn't you agree, or is, am I getting that wrong? Uh, what do you mean by ensemble? I don't know, like ensemble of, like what the the different themes that are brought out through. Like the, the cues that pr- are prior yeah. to say the shakari right. 
entrance, you know, of where they're the at. Yeah. Like, well, what we were discussing was a busy man. So, yeah. um, you know, there's lots of actual themes within that, aren't there? Um, I think with, um, I think busy man is mostly, if I can remember it correctly, it's, it's that quest theme, mm-hmm. right? Which then transforms into shakari. But that quest theme really plays with with Cybok and his and his um and the things that he believes. Yeah. And but now we are actually seeing it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and 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 that's where you know Goldsmith brings that those melodies to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's like this is this is super important. Pay attention. Yeah, um, and I know <laughs> we're running out of time. So sure. um, w- what we're going to do like for our last cue that I want to play is life is a dream. And that is the ending credits right. of the film, which is unusual because it's not a very long cue. No. And, and maybe through the film, there is actually more to the credits that they bring out, but is it just four minutes no, that the credits cause, are? No, because they, um, I was watching it last night. They do a, a real um, crummy Do they edit. switch? Yeah, oh, okay. Back to. Because I didn't watch through the credits, but it's like on the soundtrack, mm-hmm. it's only about four minutes yeah. for the ending cue. So I'm not so. I'm not 100% certain what Goldsmith was scoring to there, and maybe the, the credits were shorter. Um, I'm shocked that he didn't incorporate the, the busy man theme and, or the, the mountain theme into it. But mm-hmm. again, he got to play again some more with the Klingons who as important as they were, they weren't with the real focus, which is why mm. the, the use of that theme in the end credits is a little puzzling. But then again, uh, he didn't get a chance to play with it in, in the motion picture. So him too. And we do know yeah. that it is. Budget cuts. Sure. Probably. Sure. But you know what? It's still a great piece. Oh, yeah. And there's that yeah, kind of fantastic. that new coda that um, that Goldsmith interjects into the end credits as well. Um, like him coming out of the, I think it's coming out of the Klingon theme and into the, the motion picture theme. I think there's something new in there, and I could be wrong. But anyway, I, I think it's a great piece. It's a great way to, to end it. But I just think that I would have liked a little bit more of kind of the new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I agree. That's just me. But yeah. Um, so, Eric, out of all of this, um, what uh, actually, where can people find you? Oh, sure. Uh, you can find me <laughs> hanging out on Twitter at Sound Radio. You can find me on Facebook at Cinematic Sound. Uh, you can find me on the web, cinematicsound.net. Uh, that's where the Cinematic Sound radio program is. And uh, also check us out on uh, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, um, anywhere, any podcatcher. Uh, mm-hmm. You should be able to search for Cinematic Sound Radio and uh, find all of our programming there. Yeah, and I'm part of that. Absolutely, too. <laughs> absolutely. You're doing a great. You're doing a great job. I love your shows. So I have episode six done. You have quite a following, by the way. There's a lot of people that Do really. I? Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. They're having a great time with it, and you're playing stuff I I've never heard before. So it's it's fascinating. Keep keep it up. I really appreciate cool. it. Cool. Good. All right. 
Um, well, you can find me through social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, you can find the show through Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Um, as you've said, uh, different podcatchers, because mm-hmm. I've found it that way. Um, and also, through the show notes, you'll be able to have an Amazon link to link you to the Star Trek V soundtrack that you can buy, you can purchase, and I get a little kickback from that. So that's kind of fun. Yes. Um, and nice. <laughs> Absolutely. Great score. But Eric... Yeah, and Eric, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, and thanks for letting me talk for the past hour and a half about this movie. It's I didn't think I, I didn't think fantastic. I could talk this much about this movie, but <laughs> man, I really do like it. And again, I want to know why people hate it. Why? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I hope people can re- rediscover it. Um, yeah, at least. exactly. The score is fantastic, but just go back and, and look watch at the movie. it like a different, yes. at, different viewpoint. Yes. Instead of looking at the effects, yes. like the special effects, but look at like the production, the mm. characters. Indeed, and, that's the yeah. that's the strength, the script, the acting, and uh, the dialogue. I think it's yeah. smart. I think it's witty. I think it's great. It makes for a great Star Trek episode. Yeah, it does exactly. So go check it out again. Yeah, and so until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you're on iTunes, please rate and review the show. It really helps Soundtrack Alley Spotlight get noticed. Thanks.